but it starts in the heart. And that is the clear message. Christ is the one who searches hearts and minds. What's happening on the inside eventually comes out on the outside, and in this case, it's led to corruption inside the church. So let's take a look at this. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And this is what we read. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immortality, or <laughs> immorality, rather, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. To him, whoever comes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father God, we pray that we would have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the church universal. This particular church that we read about in Revelation 2, a church that uh, has a message as well for us in our contemporary context, may we discern it well and apply it well. And we uh, say, so let it be, as we say amen, and as we read your word, we say that this is the word of God, amen, so let it be. Would you Apply it to our hearts and give us attentiveness to the message you have, not just for those believers then, but for the ones who gather here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've seen the loveless church uh, first, and then we saw the persecuted church. Uh, last week we looked at the compromising church, and today the corrupt church. Uh, just to give you a context of where these churches are. Here's a, a map that kind of shows you the general way that these letters are being dis distributed. And that, that map starts with Ephesus. It's, it's a little bit blurry. I apologize. But you can see or, uh, on the left there, Ephesus near the coast. And, and Patmos on, on the left as well is the island where the revelation was received. And the first letter to Ephesus. And then we go up to S Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. Pergamum up there is the one we looked at last week, the compromising church, and then Thyatira, which we're calling the corrupt church. And so you can see it's kind of a circuit of letters that are going around, one to each, as we head our, our, our way to, to the end of the seventh letter. So this, this time we're in Thyatira. To give you a little more context, the next map's a bit clearer, and it shows you the current and contemporary context for where these letters would be as well. It's not clearer at all. It was on my screen originally, but... You can see here the seven churches of Revelation in modern-day Turkey. 
And then Greece is just across the, the way there. And you can see Athens with the blue dot and modern-day Europe up above uh, as well. Israel would be down on the right side all the way to the bottom right. You can see Jerusalem in blue and Israel. So this is, this, these are churches uh, there on, on the coast, uh, kind of just in from the coast of Turkey. And the, the fourth one is to that particular place called Thyatira. And we start this uh, letter by taking a look at verses 18 through 19. Uh, it's written to the angel of the church in Thyatira. As we've seen, each of these is addressed to this angel. And, you know, commentators discuss whether it's, it's actually an angel or somebody who's the leader of the church. Somebody who's given authority or position in that church is receiving this letter. And then they are to communicate it to the people who are gathered together. And this is what we read there. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now, those of you who are parents, isn't it great to get a message of encouragement about a child? When you read from a teacher, they say, hey, your, your, your son did something that was very kind uh, today, and I just wanted to let you know. Or from a coach that says, your, your daughter is so easy to coach. Your daughter is the most teachable person on the face of the planet. That's uh, probably what most of us long to hear. And it's great to get positive messages, just in general, certainly about those who are under your charge as parents to children. And this is a great start. This is a wonderful letter. If you were to receive that, you're doing the parent-teacher conferences, and the teachers sit down and say, hey, there are a lot of great things about your child. And this is what it would be. The angel's getting this message from Christ, who's giving a thumbs-up report here about those who are in the congregation. And it starts out so well. I know. And, and this is what's great. Christ knows. We said that last week, and we see again and again, Christ really does know. Even if nobody else sees, hears, understands, Christ knows. And that he reminds us every letter, I know your context. I know your heart. I know where you are. I know what you are facing. I know what you're doing. And this is what he says. You saw the list of great things here. Here's what he knows. I know your deeds. You're doing some great things. I know your love, it seems to be fueled by genuine affection. Your faith, faith, hope, love, I mean, these are the greatest things. They've got some of this stuff here. Your service, your perseverance, and your growth. You're doing more of these than you did in the beginning. So if you're using measurements for, for a church, um, these are some pretty good ones to measure. I mean, Thyatira is doing a great job in some of these areas that we would long for. Are we, more, are we doing more of the good deeds that Christ prepared for us in advance to do? Are we more loving than we used to be? Are we filled with faith? Do we serve generously? Do we persevere in the midst of difficulty? Are we actually growing? So this is very encouraging. It's a wonderful start. And there's a lot of great things happening inside this church. You know, Christ, uh, in most of these letters, uh, issues some words of encouragement, but then some words of rebuke. And it's easy to think in all or nothing terms. We're all good or we're all bad. Um, and that's just not the case, uh, especially if we're committed to what's called the, the Christian life. We realize that there is a process of growth along the way. And there'll be times 
when we need words of rebuke, it doesn't mean that we're imperfect and rejected unless we don't respond to that word of rebuke. You come, come to a fool and give a word of rebuke, it's kind of, you don't, they don't have the ears to hear it. They're not going to listen. Come to somebody who's wise with rebuke, then they will take that in and make the necessary changes. And it seems here that Christ is saying to these churches, here are the ear areas you need to focus on and change. If you have an ear to hear, repent every time. Change your ways. This isn't the end of the story. It doesn't have to be. But if you're unwilling, it's not going to end well. So he gives great words of encouragement, and then here we hear some of the rebuke. And he goes on in verses 20, verse 20 to say what it is, the heart of it. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Two things that they have, that they're doing wrong, Christ says. Number one is you tolerate Jezebel. And number two, she is misleading my servants, Christ's servants, into immorality. And we're going to unpack that just a bit. But let's just say the central issue here is a lot like we saw last week. In fact, the same two areas mentioned from last week. The central issue is this. These people, these Christians gathered, are embracing the culture around them without any discernment whatsoever. They're just taking in the, uh, the cultural norms, and they're not rejecting that, those parts that they are to be rejecting. It's a wholesale embracing of the culture that's around them. And because they're not rejecting the thoughts or the teachings of it, the practices come along as well. They're identifying so closely with the culture around them, there is nothing distinctive at all. They're embracing the cultural norms and ideas, and so they look just like the culture around them. There is nothing distinctive, especially in those areas which they were clearly called to be distinctive in. And th these are not new situations. This is what people have been wrestling with in the early church as well. What practices what we do, what don't we do. Some of them were clear, some they're wrestling with. These were clear categories that have been laid out. Who is Jezebel? Well, probably not a name you want to name your firstborn child. Perhaps, at least not if you're somebody who cares about a message that comes along with it, because Jezebel in the Old Testament is somebody who is a, not a very great figure. Uh, in fact, she was King Ahab's wife. King Ahab was a king of Israel. And she was the one who convinced King Ahab and the rest of Israel to worship false gods, bringing in Baal, Baal, and others. And all the practices that came along with it, these practices were not practices that were honoring to God in the least. And if you're familiar with uh, everything happening in that storyline, you might know the name Elijah. Because Elijah and Jezebel had a bit of a showdown there on Mount Carmel with the, the uh, prophets of Baal and the prophet, he, he representing God. And you maybe you know that story, uh, and it's, it's an amazing story, uh, and, and God shows up and, and declares that he is the one true God. And Jezebel doesn't like this, so she's hunting uh, after the prophet Elijah, 
And she turns all of the hearts of the people of that day against the one true God who revealed himself in covenant love to his people, a jealous God who wants what's best for them. And she pulled them away from that to false practices. And so the name Jezebel throughout Israelite history became a name that was associated with something very bad. You stay away. And that label by Christ himself is giving to this person, this woman in this church, perhaps her name was Jezebel, or he's just identifying her as a Jezebel, somebody who's giving false teaching that misleads his servants into immorality. This is kind of like Pergamum, but a step farther, not just geographically. This is what Pergamum looks like without repentance. They were just compromising, and now there's absolute corruption. This figure of a woman, Jezebel, is pulling them into normalizing practices that should be rejected. And this is where context actually helps a lot. Some of you may have a study Bible, or perhaps you've read people who know the history and the, the different locations and what that particular city was like. You know, the history of Cincinnati, the, the Queen City, and Seven Hills. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot about a city that gives context to the life within it. Uh, whether it's a, the, the phrase associated with a city, a tagline, or the history itself, that's kind of baked into the reality of what people who are there are experiencing. And that was true for Thyatira as well. Thyatira was a city whose economic systems revolved around joining guilds, so clubs. In order to get the stamp of approval to do business, you had to be the member of one of these guilds. This was the, the, the BBB of sorts, I guess, of that day. Maybe the Better Business Bureau, perhaps, or even more than that. The, the commission saying, if you want to do business in our city, you have to join and become a member of not just our commission, but our particular guild. So you had all kinds of different guilds. And if you were somebody like Lydia came from this city, a dealer in purple, if you were in that business, you would have to be identified with that guild. You'd have to join it, which seems innocent enough. But of course, the problem with this is each guild had a God. In each guild's God said what was good. So the guild God said what was good. <laughs> and you can't get into the, the, you can't conduct business without just, not just joining, but being part of what it was like to be in that guild, which involved sacrifices to the God of that guild. Sacrifices that would be part of a dinner meeting, which would have all kinds of other practices going along with it, and that led to more immor immorality. So contextually, this church, really a group of new believers who are being called to be distinctive out of the world, not of it, but still engaging in business, they're forced with a really difficult decision. If we're going to put food on the table for our families, we have to join a guild. But if we join a guild, we're going to be eating food sacrificed to false gods. Furthermore, we're going to be engaging in this licentious activity. And apparently, Jezebel said, you know what? That's okay. God understands for you to get ahead in this city, for you to provide, you've got to make some, some you know, choices. And her teaching was, it's all right. God doesn't care. He understands 
You've got to be like the culture around you in this context in order to conduct your business. She was teaching something. This is what Leon Morris says. The powerful trade guilds, guilds in this city would have made it very difficult for any Christian to earn a living without belonging to a guild. But membership involved attendance at guild banquets, and this in turn meant eating meat, which had first been sacrificed to an idol. And I, I cut the quote short there unintentionally because he begins to describe what happens next in terms of the uh, sexual immorality. And so you have to ask the question, what would the Christian do? Every generation of Christian must face the question, how far should I accept and adopt contemporary standards and practices? And that's what we were dealing with last week as well. Christ against culture, Christ with culture, Christ transforming culture. How do you make those choices? Jezebel's answer was, go ahead and do whatever is necessary for you to be embraced by the business community. That's how she answered that question. It's for your family, after all. And for the early church, their views were to be radically different, distinctive. Be holy as I am holy. Come apart from the nations. Don't engage in those same practices, especially in the area of moral purity. And certainly, they were to reject practices that aligned with the worship of deities, but they were embracing them here. There's the two practices mentioned here. And you know, in the early church, we don't struggle with this in our context as much as you might somewhere else. When I was over in London and invited to tour a Hindu temple, and I don't know if this happened on some of the times when I've been there with some of you, but afterwards, we were offered apples. And these apples had been sacrificed to the Hindu gods on the back end. They gave me an apple. All of us on an apple. See you later. Here's an apple that had already been sacrificed. Said, this is to the gods, and here you go. And so we're on the bus afterwards, and we're looking at the apple. Like, do we eat the apple? <laughs> or do we not eat the apple? I mean, I'm not hung up on whether I'm worshiping a false god, but it still feels like, what is this? Is this apple? Am I taking in something, like, evil? And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Paul already dealt with that back in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 8. He's talking about food sacrificed to idols, and he, and he says, he makes this conclusion. There, too, in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 8, food does not bring us near to God, and this is about food sacrificed to idols. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. It's because for him, he was wrestling with the other people who, for whom there are people with weak conscience thinking, if I eat this food, then I'm worshiping a false god. For them, don't eat it. But he says it's not really about the food. It's about what's happening underneath. This food isn't clean or unclean, pure or impure in and of itself, or even if it's been offered to something. But the question is, what's it doing in your heart as you consume this food? I mean, I'll be honest with you. It felt a little strange, but I'm like, I'm going to eat this apple. And I was thinking about 1 Corinthians 8, and it tasted great, you know? Because I was, but I was wrestling in my heart. Am I weak? Am I, <laughs> I don't know. But God has said all these things are clean. So it's more than just eating food sacrificed to idols. Something else is going on. And the heart of the issue is this. What is your motive? What's happening? Why are you taking it? And, and what's happening inside of you when you do? What's your motive? 
This is not a new issue for God's people. Back in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 58, uh, the prophet there was dealing with very, very similar things. In fact, it's interesting because we're calling the church to fasting. Listen to what he says. This is, I'm just going to read this to you from verses 1 through 3. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? So, you know, Isaiah is saying, you seem like a good group of people gathered together really looking for God. And then he goes on to say, yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. So this happened many, many years ago in Israel's history. And they weren't engaged in eating food sacrificed to idols or sexual immorality. So they thought they were okay because they were gathered together on what would be like a Sunday morning, seeking God's face. And yet God says, I know what's really going on. You see, you're fasting and you're not working on the Sabbath, but you're actually exploiting workers. You're still making a paycheck. All you've done is get other people who aren't doing the same thing and have them working for you while you come and you look religious and check off your box, worshiped God today, sought God. And so he goes on to talk about what true fasting, what true justice looks like, and what God's driving at in the Old Testament as well as in the New is heart issues, your motive. Why are you doing this? You say you seek me, but on the side you're still getting a paycheck, and you're putting other people in a position where they can't even seek me if they want to. It's a little bit more complex than just gauging eating food to sacrificed or sexual immorality. Those things are kind of a little easier. to. God says this has been going on for a long time. No wonder Christ is frustrated when that woman Jezebel normalizes the things that should not be and baptizes them as approved by God. The real driver here, it seems like, not just in Isaiah 58, but even in Thyatira, is money. Is it any surprise? It's financial gain. It's moving ahead. That's the underlying incentive to look like the culture. It's a financial one underneath it all. And Christ has said very clearly, you know what? You cannot serve God and money. You have one Savior and Lord over all. It's either Christ or something else. And money makes a very powerful God, a deceptive one. In fact, you can make a lot of excuses to say you're not chasing money while you worship on a Sunday morning and look like you're seeking God, but all you're doing is counting what you have. That's, that's, those are God's words in Isaiah 58. <laughs> and Christ here too saying, you are compromising your basic convictions, the ones that are clear because you just care about where it's going to get you in society. And so some of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is how does my faith inform all areas of life? Or, or put another way, if I claim to be a follower of Christ, how am I different? Really? You say you follow Christ? You say you walk in his ways? 
How are you distinctive? If, in, in sometimes, perhaps, at least for Thyatira, in ways that may actually cause sacrifice, hurt. Now, Paul concludes that section in 1 Corinthians 8. Later, in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 31, he says, Look, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That is the motive he's driving at. For this church that's trying to wrestle with, how much do we look like the culture around us? Underneath all that is, are you doing this for the glory of God? And then you can make some excuses and, you know, this is for the glory of God. Oh, this is for the glory of God. That's, you know, some Jedi mind tricks that are going on to pretend that you're actually doing it for the glory of God when you're not, which is why you need actual prophets and, prof and God's word saying there is a truth. Or, you know, somebody coming into your life and rebuking you and saying, brother, you're off on this. Or I think the real benefit, too, of something like the potential of a multi-ethnic church is whole swaths of cultural blindness that we have. And you don't know what that's like until you have a cross-cultural experience with other believers who say, you are the most consumerist individual on the face of the planet. And your culture only cares about money. Yeah, well, your culture only... <laughs> it, we need other people to come in. Nathan rebuking David. You're the man. We are Thyatira. Perhaps. Now to make this kind of practical, uh, Tim Keller has a, a book if you're interested in wrestling with that looks like even since we're talking about the marketplace, every good endeavor is a book that he's written. You know, he's a pastor in Manhattan, a place that is completely driven by economic gain and social advancement and status and reputation. And so there, as a group of believers, they're wrestling with the question, what does it look like for us to be different? What about for you, wherever you happen to get a paycheck? What is it like for you to be a follower of Christ, not compromising your values and your convictions, right where you happen to be, wherever it is that you are? He says, if Christians are animated by different virtues, lifted by a different view of humanity, guided by a different source of wisdom, and performed for a different audience, what will be different about the way they act and work? You know, the different virtues are the virtues, the values that, that we are to have according to God's word. And the different view of humanity is that a person is not somebody to, to squeeze all you can out of them, but somebody made in God's image to be valued and dignified. A different source of wisdom. Where do we get these answers for what to do? Not just from, you know, the social media, but from believers who've gone before us in different places and the people we rub shoulders with now, those who've gone before us. And God's word, his spirit. A different audience. I mean, ultimately, it's, it's God who's watching. He searches hearts and minds. So when you're making these choices, it's not, hey, is this person ever going to find out it's God knows? Christ comes to us and says, I know your heart. I know what's happening here. So with all of that, here's some very practical things you can ask yourself. He says, what would it look like? How is it different? You should be, if you're working, and this is whether or not you're somebody working at Culver's, drawing minimum wage, 
or a person who's the CEO of a, of a Fortune 500 company. You should have a reputation for being fair, caring, and committed to others. This is the, this is the aim. This is the target. This is the, the goal of being distinctive wherever you happen to work. Are you fair? Are you caring? Are you committed not just to what is leveraging you and your advancement, but to other people around you. You have a theology of place. God's put you exactly where you are, the people that you're, you're running up against, so that you can conduct yourself in a way that's honoring to him. He suggests you should be known to be generous with your time and your money and your attention, right? So do people look at you and say, that's, a, that's somebody who's more generous than, than others. And some of us are going to excel in one arena simply because of how God's made us. And that's great. But there should be a distinctiveness, distinctiveness to which we are, we're moving toward. Uh, he suggests that somebody can be distinctive in their response to a crisis, to a challenge, to a failure. You can be calm and poised. Now that may be more personality driven. I don't know. Some of us are probably more likely to hyperventilate when things go wrong. And that's an area of, of, of growth, right? But if you do know that God is sovereign and you've been given a job to do for the time you've leveraged all of your skills and talents to do it to the best of, of your possibility, then if there's a crisis, you can be somewhat calm about it. If God is really ordaining these things and in, in, in control. Now, he uses lots of examples in this book of people who have an opportunity to display that. He suggests as well that you can be respectful and kind to those who believe differently. People don't have the same opinions that you have. It's okay, you can be respectful and kind, respectful and kind to them while being unashamed to hold to your convictions of who you are as a believer. You can still be respectful and kind without compromising your convictions and then he suggests and this is the last one act with integrity right you, you you're not hiding anything and in fact on a positive end look for ways to make your place of work a more just environment where justice is demonstrated in small ways more beneficial to everybody who's make it a better place Seek the prosperity of the city, right? The place where God has put you. So this is just to get extremely practical. What does it really look like? Well, this is part of what is being argued here in the marketplace arena. Uh, let me read one example here because I think this is very, very helpful. Um, there was a lady who had been attending his church in Manhattan for a little while, and he finally was able to track her down and have a conversation with her. And he said, well, how did you find uh, our church? Um, and she told him this, uh, this story. She said she worked for a company in Manhattan, and not long after starting there, she made a big mistake that she thought would cost her the job. But her boss went into his superior and took complete responsibility for what she had done. As a result, he lost some of his reputation and ability to move her within the organization. She was amazed at what he had done and went in to thank him. She told him that she had often seen supervisors take credit for what she had accomplished, but she had never seen a supervisor take the blame for something she had done wrong. She wanted to know what made him different. 
He was very modest and deflected her questions, but she was insistent. Finally, he told her, I'm a Christian. That means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for things that I have done wrong. He did that on the cross. That is why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. She stared at him for a long moment and asked, where do you go to church? <laughs> it's a great question. I kind of wonder there too, if you have an opportunity to do something so radical and so distinctive and different, then somebody's going to say, where do you go to church? You know, what, what, what is this strange thing of which you speak? You're so different than the culture around you. Why? What, where are you getting your information about how to live life? You know, how about if you think about this at school? I know we don't have too many people in school. We've got some here, too. You know, the currency in school isn't money because you don't have jobs. Yeah, or you don't have very much money. What's the currency in school? Popularity? Probably. Acceptance? What are you willing to do to be accepted by the students around you? To get popular? Is it distinctive? Or do you have a sacrifice associated with being true to your convictions? I, I can tell you on the back end, and yes, I know, I'm much older, but I can tell you for, for a fact that when I became a follower of Christ at age 16 and took seriously distinctiveness from the culture around me, there were a host of opportunities to jump in, and I just chose not to because I was, as best as I could, wanting to honor God in everything that I did. And in some senses, it meant sacrifice. I didn't do all the things other kids were doing. And I was a little bit different. But more often than not, those kids who were came to me and said, I'm only doing this because I want to please other people. You seem free from that. I respect you. Even if I can't be like you, I'm choosing something different. More often than not, that's what happened. I don't know if that would happen with you. I can't say. But I can tell you that scripturally speaking, bad company corrupts good morals. It's and yet, if you stay true, I, I'll tell you there's a timeline somehow when people look back and say, those are the people I respected, the ones who were different. Not the ones who said, I'm going to be like everybody else. Well, you won't know that until you live life. And frankly, sometimes you look at all of us old people saying, hey, what he said is true. And you're like, yeah, because you're old also. And you don't know what it's like being in my, no, things are different, but the same. You're called to a distinctiveness. And frankly, it seems easy to look back and say, gee, I wish I, I had been, you know, di more different there. But you have a chance right where you are now. How do you filter things differently if you feel like a lousy mom? Because you're, you're how, how does the gospel distinctively say something different about your identity? Maybe your marriage didn't work out. Is that what the measure of your acceptance before Christ is? How do you respond differently to some of the same things that are happening to people that's distinctive? This is, this is what Christ is calling his church to, and there's an area where they've compromised, and unfortunately, it has severe consequences. I keep a list of quotes, and unfortunately, I don't always give credit where credit is due, because I don't know where I got the quote from in this case. But I, I looked at the, I was looking at some old, old notes. I came across this quote. At the end of the day, it's not where you are that matters. It's who you become 
where you are. It's not where you are that matters. It's who you become where you are. And these little choices you make, these little compromises, this listening to uh, others around you who are not living in distinctiveness that shapes those small choices for you to become somebody just like everyone else. You can be distinctive. You can make a difference. You can be a light in a crooked and depraved generation, shining like a star in an otherwise dark landscape. And there are some consequences in verse 21 and 22 and, and into 23. Christ says, I've given her time to repent of her morality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. It, it, this is pretty harsh, it feels like. And it might be easy to focus on the judgment part, but ha we have to remember the long-suffering of Christ. Do you see the mercy here? I have given her time to repent. I mean, if he were absolutely just, it could be immediate judgment, but he's given time. Paul appreciates this. You know, 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17, he says, he talks about how, how amazing it is that Christ was patient with him. He was the worst of sinners, but Christ was patient to display his, his grace and his mercy to him. And the same thing's happening here. She deserves automatic judgment. She's earned it. But no, he's giving her time, time to repent. Unfortunately, she's unwilling. Doesn't want anything. Thinks she's fine. Time is ticking, and she feels like nothing is wrong. And Christ is being explicit here. What you're doing is wrong. And there's a severe consequence this bed of suffering, there is a judgment to come. Cast her on this bed of suffering. Her children struck dead. Some manuscripts read with pestilence. And, and, and some would argue that this is not a physical death of her actual children, but the natural consequences of those who walk in her way. It's death. It always is. But there's mercy Remember, we were talking about Isaiah in, in the 50s chapter. So even back in Isaiah 55, before that passage on fasting, Isaiah is calling out to his people, saying, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Seek the Lord while he may be found. There is time yet. He is near. Forsake your way. Repent. Turn away. Turn away from your evil thoughts and to God. And guess what? You'll find mercy. You'll find mercy. My, my, my guess is that in the gods of that day, if, if you wander away from them and come back, you're not going to find mercy. You won't find it from the world, typically. This is a different kind of God who who is the only one who justly deserves to mete out instantly the consequences, but doesn't. And in fact, in the beautiful storyline of the gospel, the very one giving this message of warning is the one who took on all the penalty for those who frankly sometimes are unwilling servants, like me at times. It's too much effort. It's too hard. 
I don't like the sacrifice. Seek the Lord while he may be found. There are some words of encouragement at the end, some parting words to this church in verses 24 through 28. And, and just, you can see those, the, 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 the verses there, but just to draw two kind of uh, phrases from there that, that are striking as he speaks to the rest of those in Thyatira who don't hold to her teaching. Okay, they've, they've stayed true to this. He says, hold on to what you have. That's what he says. Hold, what you have is precious. Hold on to it. Don't let go. Trust and be content. Trust that God will provide. Because the teaching of Jezebel was make some compromises so that you can get what you need maybe luxuriously, perhaps even just the basics. Didn't Christ say, look at the lilies of the field and, the, and everything? I'm going to provide. And, and here's the thing. You can do it in your own way, and you'll never see how God's miraculous provision comes, perhaps. And so at the end of the day, you're doing it for your own glory, not for God's. Hold on what you have. Trust. Be content. You don't need more. God's given you what you need. Stop striving. And realize there is a sufficient Savior and that you have a different motive. This makes me think of the, another letter to the Corinthians where Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. You through his poverty might become rich. Listen to the financial terms here. You know, Christ and, and Paul and everybody knows that money speaks, right? So here's the value system. God's, God, Christ was rich, and yet he became poor for you. He had to sacrifice everything. He left the guild of heaven <laughs> and came down to the mess of earth and became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. The most unfair trade of all. There's no fair trade practices in this economic, spiritual equation. The person who became rich emptied himself. Do you think that's distinctive? Holding so loosely that you empty yourself for those who didn't even deserve it. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Hold on to what you have. Trust. This is the kind of Savior who's walking with you. Be content. And he says, do my will to the end. That's in verse 26. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give. And he talks about what he will give. Hold on with what you have and do his will to the end. That is, you have a different way of life. You have a different measure for what do I do? What do I not do? It's not just what everybody else is saying. It's what does he say? What does he reveal to you? The driving questions for your actions come from what God has revealed. It's just a different way of living. It's an opportunity to ask different questions, distinctive questions. And here, here are just, I, I could have thought a lot, uh, of a lot more, but here, here are three things. Maybe one of these you can choose for this week ahead. A question to ask when you have a decision before you. Am I seeking influence or gain over integrity? Are you making a choice based on the influence it will give you at work or even with kids or in something? 
or gain, it's going to advance you in some way, perhaps a financial incentive, perhaps an entry into somebody's good graces over integrity. You know the right thing to do, but you're willing to just make that slight compromise small. Another question you might ask, and this is a little philosophical, but who am I becoming if I do this? You know, if you have a decision to make, ask, what effect is this going to have on my soul? And, and that's a very individual question. That's why I put in parentheses, are we becoming? You know, it's not, we're all about individualism, usually. White American culture, anyway, in America, is what's in it for me? What's happening to me? The biblical mentality is, is broader. It doesn't dismiss that, but it includes corporately. Who are we becoming? This is a message to a church. Who is the church becoming by having those who are dismissing the harder things of being, being somebody who follows Christ? And there's, it's a little hard to gauge and measure, I, so maybe that seems philosophical. Perhaps this question is easier, I don't know, but one just simple is, will this honor God? <laughs> Do I honor God in this action in a very small way or a big way? And those might be reasonable questions to bring to the polls, by the way, as we, and some of you probably already voted, but what's distinctive? Sometimes it's not just even the check, but the questions behind it that you're asking that are driving that action. And too many times it's easy to gauge by the external things. And Christ is driving from the beginning, way back in Genesis, at the stuff underneath it. Why are you doing that? What are you trying to influence or gain, if anything? And here's the thing. We often don't know it. But a good place to start is at least asking that question and inviting God's Spirit, who, according to Psalm 139, as David says in 23 to 24, search me, know me, try me, test me, see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Are you willing to do that? To say, God, send the spotlight on my heart and search me out. These kinds of questions appear to be the kind that that church was unwilling really to ask, and if there's clear responses to do. But I hope that won't be true for me personally, or for you, or for us, certainly as a small C church, but a big C church as well. Will this honor God, lest we become the corrupt church? And as I pointed out before, none of these churches exist anymore. There are consequences when we don't repent and be sensitive to what God's Spirit is doing. This, that's not even a, a nation that has the turkey. It's hard to get in there as a believer anymore. It has a completely different worldview now. That could be us. Let's not be the reason why <laughs> now. And let's ask God to clean up our corrupt hearts and give us a heart for the integrity to which Christ calls us right here. Father God, I do pray. I know it is challenging, at the very least sometimes, to make some of these choices and to know how to move forward, especially when we have people in respect to positions giving us different uh, perspectives on what that looks like. It's good for us to go and to consider and to weigh, for sure. But we also need you, Christ, who searches hearts and minds to reveal 
our own motivations. Are we truly honoring God? Or are we simply doing something that benefits us in some way? In a way that the rest of the world is considering. That's not right. We want to be distinctive. We want to be salt. We want to be light. And give us clarity because oftentimes we don't know what that really looks like. Or we've deceived ourselves. The heart is deceitful above all things. No wonder, Christ says, I am the searcher of hearts and minds. Search us. Know us. Try us. Test us. See if there's any offensive way in us. And we pray, not just individually as a congregation, as a nation, but certainly the collective people of God, lead us in the way everlasting. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.